can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by actor Michelle Williams. Across nearly three decades of work, Williams has solidified herself as one of the most dynamic performers working today. She's been nominated for five Oscars beginning in 2006 with Brokeback Mountain. She was then recognized for her turns in Blue Valentine, My Week with Marilyn, Manchester by the Sea, and of course in Steven Spielberg's latest film, The Fablemans. We discuss each of those endeavors in this conversation, but today we begin with her turn in Showing Up, the fourth collaboration between Williams and director Kelly Reichardt. In it, she plays a Portland sculptor whose preparations for a new opening are constantly being interrupted by daily life. Here's a clip from the trailer. Hi. She's amazing. Love the green stockings. I don't know what I'm supposed to do without hot water. My show's open on Friday. I'll be free to deal with it after that. I have a show too, you know. You're not the only one with a deadline. I know, but I have two shows, which is insane. You should make more like this. I'm enjoying my retirement. I get up, I do a little of this, a little of that, and before you know it, it's time to watch TV again. That sounds terrible. 
When's my hot water coming back on? <sighs> I'm on it. You know, I'm sick of not having hot water, Joe. It's such a total drag. It's such a shitty thing to do to a person. I'm sick of it. That was from the new film called Showing Up. The film is really worth seeing for a whole host of reasons, chief among them Michelle Williams, who time and time again has this uncanny ability to transform herself into each character. Pulitzer Prize winner Hilton Owls once wrote that watching Williams work is like seeing a figure from a documentary perform a fictional reenactment of her own life. She has control and, even more interesting, no control over where the role carries her. And so, for today, I wanted to talk to Williams about how she does the work that she does. And to do that, we had to unpack her upbringing in Montana, then San Diego, coming of age on the set of Dawson's Creek, working through tragedy in the mid-aughts, and how, at age 42, she's begun to create from a place of peace. This is Michelle Williams. As we get started here, I want to say at the top, if I get a fact wrong at any point, please feel free to correct me. Okay. Since we're both Virgos born on September 9th. What? I think you understand this like compulsion to get things right, or at least try to get things right. Oh, we're going to have so much to talk about. Whoa. I know. I didn't know that till today. What year are you born? 1994. You're the only the third person I've ever met. I think Adam Sandler has the same birthday. It's true. He does. I haven't met him, but my friend Zoe Kazan, she's the only other person that I've met in life. And I am like, I have so many questions. Like, does it feel like to be inside your brain what it feels like to be inside my brain? Because we do, God, we like to get things right. Oy. That is what we're going to try to do. And we'll try to figure that out by the end. Michelle Williams, it's nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you too. I've heard so much about you. Likewise. I think, why don't we start with this new film of yours? It's called Showing Up. It's the fourth movie with... Kelly Reichardt that you've made. And in it, you play a rather frustrated visual artist preparing for a gallery opening in Portland where she lives and works. And I want to start with this character because you once said, each thing I do is a product of the thing before, because that was the thing that made me grow. And I only feel the benefit of that growth the next time around. Everything feels like it's the bloom from the seed that came before. I so loved that. And I was thinking, what was the seed that bloomed while making showing up? That's true. I'd stand by saying that. Sometimes it's scary when you hear yourself repeated back to you because you think, oh, no, like, what did I commit? And do I agree with myself? But that sounds right. You know, I hadn't worked for a really long time because of the pandemic and being pregnant and Showing up was my first time back at work since Fosse Verdon. And then after showing up, I went to go make the Fablemans. So it kind of felt like greasing the machinery again. Um, And you know what else I would say? That it was my first time back at work having 
had another baby and being happily married. And I thought, wow, what source am I going to work from now? Because I think I'm running on something different. I think previously there was another kind of energy that powered me through my work. And with this like current state of happiness that I'm enjoying, I wondered how work was going to feel different. And it did. And it, I think what I discovered on showing up that then I could take into the Fablemans was it's okay to work from a place of peace and it doesn't ruin it. That difference in what's motivating, that you're working from a place of peace. Like I said, you made four movies with Kelly Reichardt. And I was thinking, how has that relationship changed over the last 15 years? Like on Wendy and Lucy, you had a crew of 15 people. On this one, you had your first hair and makeup trailer. It's true. So if the economics haven't changed all that much, how has the dynamic between the two of you creatively changed? I think that there's a deepening of trust because we keep returning to each other. So there's a feeling of it being a kind of a marriage. So we feel safe to show things to each other because we know that we're not going anywhere. But we had that really from the start. I have always felt comfortable bringing Kelly my bad ideas, then feeling like she's going to whittle them into something that actually is going to become useful for our film. When we made Wendy and Lucy, I thought, I was like, what about if she had this? Or like, what if she looked like this? And She's like, no, no, it's too much. And then finally I was like, what about if she had like an ace bandage wrapped around her ankle, but you'd never saw what was under it. And she said, ah, oh, finally, like, yeah, that I'm into that. So we sort of feel comfortable trying things with each other. You said that it feels like a marriage between the two of you. Who's better at arguing between the two of you? She's much better at it. <laughs> she has a... Uh, really wicked sense of humor, and it serves her well. <laughs> and I'm not much of a fighter. We got into like one fight on this film. Other than that, it's like peace, love, and rainbows. But I think, you know, when you're in a creative environment, when there's time is short and money is scarce and you are on the clock and you're working to come up with things, like it can be a place where tension can exist and that's okay. You know, you said that a uh... When hearing a quote back to you, you start to think like, I don't know if I still like that one. Yeah. Here's a quote. Let's see if you like this one. I've always thought about childhood as being this really fertile time that if done correctly, you can keep drawing from your entire life. I stand behind that. So I think to understand how you made all the incredible work you've made, we have to know a little bit of where you're drawing from. Mm. You're born in 1980, Montana. Your father is self-made commodities trader, your mother a homemaker, but it's actually at your great-grandparents' house that you have your first clear memories, right? Yeah, that's true. What were they? I grew up in Kalispell, Montana, and my great-grandparents had a farm in Shoto, Montana, and we spent all of our summers there. My great-grandparents were Democrats. And they welcomed people into their home and they would take in families who were traveling. So there was a group of us kids that would play with each other 
me and my cousins and then these strangers that somehow had showed up and would be sitting at our table. And we would make up plays and we would put a blanket down in the living room and that would be our stage for the adults to watch at night. And that was my first experience of storytelling. And my first experience of community and that you can have these deep family feelings with people that you aren't related to. Also, I would say the kind of childhood that I had at that point was full of freedom. We would just come back for lunch and dinner and we would bike down unpaved roads. We would wander through fields. We would search for animal skins and arrowheads. And there was always this sense that if you just went a little further, you might find the treasure that you were looking for. Is that like a metaphor? I mean, I guess it's sort of become one. Um, that there was something out there for you, that there was something that the universe had hidden and you had to find it. And that is the exact feeling that I look for when I work today. There's a feeling that I'm trying to catch between action and cut, and its most simple name is freedom. But it's what I experienced from birth to, I think, eight or nine when we moved to San Diego. Well, it's when you move there, I think around the age of 11, that you start auditioning. But to set a scene inside your teenage bedroom, hung an Edward Hopper print, a collage of people's eyes cut out from magazines, biographies of Marlon Brando and James Dean, and a quotation from Walt Whitman that read, I ordained myself loosed of limits and imaginary lines, which comes from the poem Song of the Open Road, number five. Was that Whitman line instructive to you at that age? Did it serve as a kind of mantra? You know, it, it did. I still reflect on what his poetry meant to me at the age that I read it and how fibrous it became, how it wrapped itself around me and became what I thought. What do you mean? It's funny, I digress a little, but I, you know, he just, he meant so much to me. This idea of an inherent good nature and possibility, because it reminded me of my early childhood. But at the point that you and I are talking about, you know, 11, 12, 13, starting to audition, living in San Diego, I was not seeing those words come alive anywhere. The inherent good nature. No. So it was in my memory, because it was so wrapped up in being a child in Montana, but the words became important to me because they were the only manifestation of this feeling that I had of what it meant to be alive. Mm. When, when you're 15, you move to Burbank in an apartment with like turquoise carpeting, emancipated from your parents hoping only to become an actor. And I wonder, looking back on that now, you moving there by yourself, being that age, when you see that person, when you see that young girl, like, what do you, what do you see? How do you see her? You know, I kind of can't believe that she's the same person that I am. I can't believe that I haven't shed three skins. You know, it feels like 
lifetimes ago, it can be a little hard for me to relate to it now because it's sad. I feel worried about her. And I mean, I know how it turns out, but when I sort of isolate her in time, it makes me, makes me sad. Well, I think a less sad moment comes pretty shortly thereafter. You, you have, of this period, you said, I didn't know how to keep myself warm in the winter or cool in the summer. And when it came to acting, it was like a stand-in for selfhood. Like maybe I could get regard for a woman that I was playing and that would somehow transfer to me this person that I didn't really know how to inhabit yet. With that, I was thinking, did landing the role of Jen on Dawson's Creek, did it feel like a kind of intermission from yourself? I was 16 when that happened, and I'd been in Los Angeles by myself for about a year to get a job, to get any job, to get a job in a Pizza Hut commercial, to get a job as an extra was such a big deal. So the elation of being chosen, because I had started auditioning when I was 11 and would go on one, two, three auditions a day. It's an incredible amount of rejection. So to finally hear the word yes is miraculous. I was beside myself with joy. I had always wanted to be on a TV show because I wanted to have a family that I would keep returning to year after year. It also transported me to this sleepy southern town. I feel like I'm kind of partially from the south. You know, I've kind of spent equal amounts of time in Montana, San Diego, North Carolina. I really, I did a lot of growing up there. But it was funny to be playing a kid on high school, having never been to high school, and going through these sort of developmental experiences on a TV show that I didn't have in real life. That's so insane. <laughs> I don't know. I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah. So I was a cheerleader and I went to prom and I went to college, but all on TV. Those years, they seem pivotal because it sounds like you got to have you're like Beatles in Hamburg moment. Like I'm not just referencing the 10,000 hours theory because this show is produced by Malcolm Gladwell, but it does seem like you got to figure out how to do this job there. I did. It was, it was really good training for simple things like how you learn lots of lines and how to hit your mark without looking at it. And because I was so young, it also taught me how to be responsible how to show up on time, how to schedule dental visits with a work schedule. Like it taught me how to take care of myself and earn a living out in the world. And it also allowed me time to develop other interests. You know, I probably read more books and watched more movies in that time period than any other in my life. Because there was a nice scene down there back in you know, the early 2000s, there was good music, it's a beautiful record store, and I would go in there and get my sort of like weekly update. And there was a DVD store run by a huge film buff, and I would go there and I would get my film lessons, and I would sit on the floor of the Barnes & Noble and 
just read through a stack. So it was kind of, in some way, it's like where I educated myself. You got your education out in the world. I did, yeah. I left any kind of formal school when I was 15. So I've had to keep on top of my self-education because without it, I wouldn't have much to talk about. (laughs) So I'd always loved to read. Like reading was always a big part of my my life and my family. And I just kind of read my way through that six and a half years on Dawson's Creek. Somewhere in that six and a half years, you arrive at what you've called the beginning, where you're offered two very different projects in, in Killer Joe, a play by Tracy Letts, and then a movie featuring gun-toting cheerleaders. I think I have it right. Nothing against gun-toting cheerleaders, I just want to say. So at the moment, when you're 18 years old, what did you see down those two roads? Well, Killer Joe is an incredible piece of writing, and I felt like I was being allowed to touch something great for maybe the first time. Where something lives and how big it is or how long it might carry on or what I might be compensated for it has never really been a motivating factor for me. So doing a off-Broadway play that people may or may not see didn't occur to me. I knew what beauty was. I read books, I saw movies, I listened to music. I wanted to make something beautiful. I wanted to be a part of something beautiful. And that's what the experience of Killer Joe felt like to me. Something beautiful. Yeah. Even though the play is so brutal. Even though it's an insane play. (laughs) You know, you really, as an actor, you live on words. You live for words. I don't come to life without them. And Tracy Letts is as talented as they come. His words could bring me to life. This is maybe a silly question, but when you go to New York City and you work with Tracy Letts in this off-Broadway production in a theater that holds maybe 200 people. You're like 18 years old in 1999, carrying around a map. But it's my understanding that when others were near you, you would hide that map. And I wondered, why did you hide it? I was embarrassed to look. (laughs) I'm like, where are you? You are really inside of my brain. Yeah. Wow. This was the Virgo promise we made each other. I've do you feel like we were, like you were maybe there with me because the things that you've been mentioning, I'm, I have not been familiarized, you know, other people haven't brought them to my attention. And I like, I don't even know that I can't even remember that I said that. And, and it's so true and it's so personal and you found it. Um, I was embarrassed that I would look like I didn't know where I was going because I didn't. And I was so overwhelmed in this city of subways. I, I didn't know how to do it. I, yeah, I had a huge fear of people thinking that maybe I didn't belong in New York City or that I wasn't a real New Yorker or, yeah, that I didn't belong. So I would hide this little fold-up map and like pretend to sort of be like looking around in my purse, but really I'm just looking at my subway map to see where I transfer. <laughs> you know, I missed a lot of time with parents. So there were things that nobody taught me how to do. And 
I had to learn them by myself. And sometimes that's embarrassing because you make mistakes and you feel like other people were given the information and you weren't. And simple things like I didn't understand proportions. Like when I started cooking for myself, I didn't understand that you didn't cook the whole box of pasta or put the whole jar of tomato sauce into a jar to warm up. I'm still learning that lesson. I didn't know what clothes fit me. I didn't know I was buying pants for years that were too big, but I didn't know any differently. You often come back to this line about not exactly knowing where you were going, not being clear about the destination. And yet it dawned on me, and maybe I'm just an outsider looking in. We don't know each other, right? But it dawned on me that like an 18-year-old did know that they should go do a strange play by Tracy Letts in New York City at 18 years old in 1999. That means something. That's not a common choice. Thank you. Many people would have done the gun-toting cheerleaders. Thank you. That's all I can say. That's such a kind that's such a kind um thing to say to me and such a kind observation to make. I can only say thank you. I suppose one thing that being alone at a very young age does is it hones your instincts about people because you are in charge of protecting yourself. And so you become very aligned with a quiet voice inside. And while these other things feel like they're falling apart, like why are my pants falling down and why do I have all this leftover pasta? There is something else that's working well. Even if the pants didn't fit and the pasta was left in Tupperware, there was some artistic engine that was guiding you forward. Yeah, my relationship with myself was deepening because I didn't have anybody else around. And so I got good at keeping my own company and understanding what I was drawn to, what my nature was. But I think that also goes back to Walt Whitman, yeah, the naturalists. When Dawson's Creek ended, you said more than anything, I want respect, a good sense of self, and to be viewed as an artist. And the last part around artistry is key and I think understanding what moves you forward. And I wondered, was working with Ang Lee on Brokeback Mountain in 2006, was that the first time you felt like you were viewed as an artist on screen? Absolutely. I'd made a movie with Vim Vendors. He had no relation to me as being on Dawson's Creek. I just met him. He didn't know what I had done. He just met me and we started talking about Montana's and all of a sudden I'm in a Vim Vendors movie. He wasn't a big fan of Jen? <laughs> I think he actually saw a picture of me from the TV show after we finished filming and he said, oh, if I had known you looked like that, I don't think I would hire you. I understood. <laughs> I heard he was actually a big Lassie fan. I mean, who isn't a big Lassie fan? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No more jokes. Okay. So I was... I think I was doing a play at Williamstown maybe right before Brokeback Mountain went out. So I was, it came out. So I was building this sense of myself as like being allowed to be in these places with these people. But the Ang Lee thing 
was pretty huge because that brought with it a different level of recognition. I went to the Oscars for the first time. It actually, when it was sort of all over, became a little destabilizing because I felt like now people were looking at me and I didn't know what to do. And before I had felt safe trying these new things because nobody was paying attention. What did that feel like in that moment? I was kind of frozen. I didn't know what to do. And this thing that had felt very natural, decision-making, the choices about what to do and what not to do, that felt like such an instinctive process that was working well and running smoothly. And then all of a sudden it just froze. And it took me a while to unstick myself and realign with the path I'd been so comfortable walking down. We'll be right back after a quick break. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first-ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice, and much more. You can enter before July 31st, 
at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Coming back... You know, on the heels of Brokeback Mountain, you have your first child with the late Heath Ledger. And what I want to ask you about is this passage that you continue to return to in the wake of this tragedy from a book of essays called A Field Guide to Getting Lost, written by Rebecca Solnit. It reads, Emptiness is the track on which the centered person moves said a Tibetan sage 600 years ago. And the book where I found this edict followed it with an explanation of the word track in Tibetan. Shoal, a mark that remains after that which it has passed by. A footprint, for example. In other contexts, shoal is used to describe the scarred hollow in the ground where a house once stood. The channel worn through a rock where a river runs in flood. The indentation in the grass where an animal slept last night. All of these are shoal, the impression of something that used to be there. Reading that passage, I, I, I hadn't revisited that in so long. What did those words do for you, both then and, and now? Did they help you understand the impression that was left behind? Gosh. I'm thinking a few things. Yes, they gave me great comfort because, well, it's a way to frame loss. And it made me feel okay with this hollowing. But the thing, when I hear those words now that I think, is it reminds me of the importance of making things because they exist for people to find when they need them. So that when you feel like you have nothing, you have words to hold. I guess it makes me feel like I hope that I've made something in my lifetime that somebody can hold in the way that I don't know what I would have done or how I would have seen myself through had I not read the words that she wrote. And then suddenly being any kind of artist feels like a really great way to live and spend your time. Well, I can tell you, the next movie you make is one called Blue Valentine. And this is strange, and I've, and I've never actually said this to anyone, let alone on the show, but since we're going here, and you kind of created this prompt, I'll tell you, I remember... When the film came out in 2010, I was uh, 16 years old and I had just moved to California after 
this divorce in my family. And I went to the 11 a.m. Saturday showing of the movie with my mother, <laughs> which tells you everything you need to know about the kind of teenager I was. <laughs> but I remember walking out of the theater and both of us for five, ten minutes just kind of kept avoiding eye contact, a little bit how you and I are now. You know when you're trying to like hide crying and you just contort your face in a way so the other person can't see what's going on? And I realized only just now that the reason my mother and I were feeling so much is because you had articulated through this character, this pre-trembling feeling so beautifully, the, the tumult, the precariousness, the fear of what comes next after a house falls. And suddenly, in that like terribly harsh 1 p.m. California sunlight, we were left to sort through the rubble. And that is what the movie brought out of us. I'm going to say thank you again. <laughs> I'd like to know more about your mother, because that movie almost got an NC-17 rating. I remember. That wouldn't have stopped us, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When's your mother's birthday? September 8th. <laughs> um, I'm... You know, you get used to just sort of just kind of like skim the surface, you know, when you go out and sort of converse about, you know, your your life because you it's such a funny line to walk because you you want to leave behind some sort of an an appropriate record. Yeah, this is what I was like and this is what I thought about. But you don't want to give away the things that are so incredibly hard won because then they feel trivial when you just plop them down and so you kind of get used to skimming the surface and totally getting away with it. The way that you like construct the the narrative of my life is so true that it's like uh, just like a little startling. Just saying that is it, like it, uh, good, good. No, don't worry. Um, it's just like it makes me think about myself in a way that I don't normally, you know. But it's a vulnerable thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a vulnerable thing. That line. You're making sense of things for me in a way that I'm like, oh. Yes, and that's definitely the aim. And that's also why, you know, like I I did want to tell you that. Thank you for being there with me. Yeah, no, it's, where were we? I can't remember. Right, I'm going to shut up now. Um, obviously, this performance did a whole lot for me in sorting through all the bullshit of my childhood. But did the performances that came after Blue Valentine, in what you've often called a, a decade of grief, did that work force you to do the same, to, to work through what you had to work through? I think they're all teachers. All the women that I've played have taught me about myself, but also how to expand myself and change myself. I don't find that it's... One-to-one -one like that. Yeah. There's a place where we meet. But the truth is, is I'm always trying to get as far away from myself as I can. I cannot help but take my experiences with me, but I 
what I'm hoping to do is shift perspective and habit so that I can find again more freedom. But it was, you know, at this point in our life, my daughter and I lived upstate New York and we had this really cozy, private, safe feeling life. And I think it gave me the ability to take some pretty big chances in my work. What's the uh, Flaubert quote you always use? Ugh, I want to live the quiet life of the bourgeois so that I can be violent and unrestrained in my work. Well, then why don't we talk squarely about that work? Because the shift that happens is from naturalism to expressionism, or at least that seems like the aim in projects like My Week with Marilyn, Fosse Verdon, and now most recently, The Fablemans. Was that the aim? That's that's what happened to me when I when I made Marilyn. Before that, the kind of in my twenties, in my late teens and my twenties, I wanted to because I was coming off of a teen drama, I wanted to learn naturalism. I wanted to tell the truth. And then when I went to make Marilyn, I realized I was missing some tools in the kit. I hadn't played someone who was far from me physically, and I had to unlearn myself. I had to break myself down, get rid of myself, and then rebuild myself in this person's image. And that work was so painful. It hurt to find new positions. I'd been assembling myself for 30 years, and all of a sudden, I had to change things that were inherent and structural. And I started working with teachers in London, movement teachers, Alexander teachers, dialect. And I got so excited and the possibilities it would open up that I am not, I'm not bound to myself. I became hooked on this kind of training and studying an external way of approaching a character. You have a quote, you said, I wanted to make work that an audience member had to deal with, where there was less interpretation on their part, because the interpretation was really my work. What do you mean by that? I didn't want people to be able to project things onto me. I wanted to make things that felt definite and I'm interested now in both, for sure, but I didn't want to be pure projection. And you felt like you were. Yes, and I didn't want to just be that. I mean, film is a medium where you take your you you are asking people to relate to it personally. So there is an amount of projection that's necessary in the audience performer relationship. But I didn't want it to be just that. I wanted to risk how much an audience member could love the person that I was making. I wanted to risk their love and earn their respect. In thinking about, in thinking about the type of work you wanted to make, in The Fablemans, you play Mitzi, who was modeled after Steven Spielberg's real mother, Leah Adler. She's a mid-century housewife and a passionate dancer and pianist who has, in many ways, 
sublimated her dreams to raise this family. But I want to go to the last day of shooting. When you say goodbye to this character, what happens? I lost it. I lost it in a way that surprised me and scared the people I was working with. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was hunched over sobbing at a table. You know, it's the last day. They have food trucks and picnic tables and everybody's like celebrating. And I was heaving and sobbing so hard that Tony Kushner came over and said, Dolly, what... What is it? Something happened? What's wrong with you? I feel like I got everything I ever wanted. Like I've got my Fableman's family. I've got this like vibrant, expressive character and all these kids. And and now, and these words, these gorgeous words. And now it's all over. See, this is why when I was first starting out, I was like, I want to be on a TV show because I don't want it to ever end. I just want to like keep going to see my family, keep going to see my family. It's such a big experience for all of us, for me, for Paul Dano, for Seth Rogen. And Paul felt similarly, he didn't cry like I did, but you know, when we see each other since, it's been hard to move on from this film experience. What did you feel like you were losing once he said cut? Well, first there was this woman you know, when you get to inhabit these other people and see things through their eyes, and she had such a big, bright life force. And so I got to borrow that, and it was wonderful. When she powered down, I felt smaller. (laughs) So I missed her. I missed that soul running through me goes back to that feeling of doing my first off-Broadway play is you're really working with words and there I am working with Tony Kushner's words like they're they're edible they're delicious I can have the most fun with the best writing and then on that day all of those gorgeous scenes were all in the past and I would never get to live them again and I was sad for it I guess I wonder, does that, that Rebecca Solnit passage we quoted earlier about the impressions left, I know we were talking about a real person in that case, but in some ways, don't the characters do the same to you? I mean, in some ways, do you end up holding those impressions as the years go on? Definitely. And I feel like I am allowed to call them back and remember them and think about what they gave me and what they taught me. Playing these women, they've all helped me except myself. First of all, watching movies and watching characters. And second of all, playing characters and becoming other characters has taught me how to be human. It has taught me, if I can accept the women that I play for their shortcomings or idiosyncrasies, how can I not give the same love to myself? Why would I deny myself of that when I jump at the opportunity to give it to them? There's this Sai Baba quote that I love. He says, all I ask is that you take me to your darkest parts. And if I can go there with these women, for these women, can I do that with myself and let others do that with me? You know, my friends, my husband, the people that I trust. So 
becoming these other people has ultimately for me been an act of trying to love myself. You know, I, I only have like three more things for us before we have to go. But the, when are we going to get to the September 9th <laughs> birthday <laughs> celebration? Okay, that, that'll, be the, that'll be the fourth thing. Um, on the flip side of that darkness you're talking about is a kind of joy that you seem to be feeling in this moment. It's kind of where we started the conversation. And if embodying this woman in the Fablemans, who was so full of creativity, someone who, to go back to where we started this talk, wanted to create a fertile childhood for her kids to later draw upon in adulthood. Is it making you rethink with these two new young kids of your own what this time should look like? Because my early childhood really served me so beautifully in the moment and then also as an adult and I continue to reflect upon it, I've always been pretty obsessed with early childhood. I always would say to my daughter, you know, your childhood is this big and your adulthood is this big and I'm here to protect this part. It's, a, it's my preoccupation is making this all too brief time in their lives magical because to them it is and it could be. And, you know, I got this like fairy stationery. And when my daughter would lose a tooth, I would write these teeny tiny letters and put them in a teeny tiny envelope. And she believed in everything until she was 12. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's always been, I've always been interested in it. And then I collided with this role where this woman was a true playmate to her kids. And it just reminded me and reinforced my my desire to be exactly that kind of mom. It's so easy to get distracted with like the to-do list and the phone and the, you know, entanglements and the mm. technology and you say podcasts? Podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um that you can forget to do the thing that your kids want most from you, which is to play. Well, then let's go back to the earliest uh, memory of play for you. It's where we began. You're eight years old, riding bareback on a horse, searching for arrowheads. And as we leave, is that feeling you had then what you're most after now in the work? That Walt Whitman quote, loosed of limits and imaginary lines. Is that in the years ahead where you want to go? It is truly what I'm trying to recreate for myself every time between action and cut. It's the free fall space. Nothing bad can happen there. There is no death. There are no bad phone calls. Nobody gets hurt. A kind of timelessness can open up and it requires lots of preparation and concentration and planning all this stuff that happens before. If you line that up, you can make this this other feeling happen. And the only way that I can describe that feeling is related to the childhood that I had. And again, like I said, the simplest word that I can use for it is freedom. Hmm. Through raising your first child, 
you had this quote. You said, I thought about my life at work and how much of a mystery it is to her. But one day she's going to see these movies. So my hope now is that the work makes her proud and that she sees the reason I was gone. Will she be proud? Will she recognize me? Or would she be surprised by what she didn't know about me? And I thought, as we leave, as you return to these two lovely young children, and of course, Matilda, if, if those questions are still in mind, and if so, what, what they mean to you now? Yeah, I remember so strongly having that feeling when I came home from work one night and she was sleeping and I went into her room just to be with her because I hadn't seen her during the day and I smelled her hair. And there were all these things, like all these secrets in her hair that I didn't know where she had been, what these smells were that she had picked up during the day. Chlorine and perfume and just things that were foreign. And I felt sad to have missed out on those experiences with her. And now she's almost a grown-up. She's 17 and a half. So she does take an interest in my adult life and my adult work as she's embarking on her own. And she saw showing up. She saw the Fablemans. She, my dream came true. Like it, it matters to her and it makes her proud to have seen me work hard. You know how you said, uh, looking back at these younger versions of yourself, it's, it's almost, they almost are imperceptible to you because they feel so far away. My actual last question is like the, the person that's here now, the one that is full of joy, the one that has these two beautiful new movies, the one that has three kids, <laughs> the one that has Steven Spielberg calling you up to play his mother. <laughs> Can you see that person? And does it make sense to you? Wow, what a good question. I do. You know, it makes me think about that if a boat leaves a harbor and is rebuilt in its passage, does the same boat arrive at its destination? And I feel like I rebuilt the boat. <laughs> I don't know. I guess we're always seeking for sense and order, right? It's how we function as social creatures. Especially as Virgos. God, you understand everything. <laughs> so I can make a sense of it. And when I hear you retell things, there does seem like there's a, you know, a thread. An internal logic. And yeah, an internal logic. Yes. Even when whatever was going on sort of around or outside had no rhyme or reason. But making sense of it makes it all feel better. And then there are certain things that will always exist as outside of the realm of sense, you know, sickness and traumatic death. Like there are things that, will, that, that can't get incorporated, but how you respond and how you survive, you can find sense in your journey if you can't make sense of the circumstances. Well... I thank you for trying to make sense of all these things that don't totally make sense together on this podcast. 
I think things make a little bit more sense now after the podcast. So thank you for your unbelievably thoughtful observations and finding the invisible thread that runs through somebody's life. Oh, I forgot. Any last questions you have for me? Yeah, I'd like to talk about <laughs> what it feels like inside of your head being a, a September 9th or Yes, I'm so sorry we're out of time, but thank you. Next time <laughs> we will do that. Michelle Williams, it was an honor to sit with you. Uh, likewise, thank you so much. our show if you enjoyed today's episode be sure to give us five stars on spotify apple wherever you do your listening i want to give a special thanks this week to the team at idpr daphne javich eric lures a24 and of course michelle williams you can see her in kelly reichardt's new film showing up now in theaters and limited release to see if the film is playing at a theater near you, be sure to visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Michelle, I imagine you would enjoy our talks with Kate Blanchett, Ethan Hawke, Kiwi Kwan, Laura Dern, Questlove, Stephen Yun, Claire Foy, and Eddie Redmayne. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support us by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Clarice Guevara. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Garrett Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Kaylin Ung. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Martin, John Schnars, Kerry Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Allison Roman. Until then, stay safe and so long. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.